Well, the, the, the four sections that we're going to work through here in verses 8 through 20, um, they all have to do with riches. And so, so there's a focus on riches here. And so we're going to see verses 8 and 9, we're going to see the systems of riches. Um, then secondly, verses 10 through 12, we'll see the deceit of riches. And then third, verses 13 through 17, we'll see the transience of riches. And then finally, the, the, the final, the high point is the alternative to riches. And so the points one, two, and three are going to be, be really cloudy and overcast and dark, but, but the, the clouds will break and the sun will shine in verses 18 through 20. So hang on um, if you can. So let's start there in verses eight and nine, the systems of riches. So there the preacher, he, he turns back to a theme that he's covered all the way back in chapter four. If you remember this, this idea of riches, um, and so there in chapter four, this, this idea of oppression he saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So in chapter 4, he said, I see these oppressions and no one is there to care for the oppressed. No one can comfort them. And, and that was perplexing to him. It was, it was disheartening to him. And then he saw not only that where people being oppressed, but on the side of the oppressors, there was power and no one could help. It was a situation they were stuck in and they couldn't get out of it. And so there in chapter 4, he connected oppression with, with pride and envy. Those were the things that, that drove the oppression in chapter 4. But here in Verses 8 and 9, as he transitions away from the house of God in chapter 5, now he, he's going back to what he sees under the sun. So he made a brief detour in chapter 5 in the house of God. Remember last week, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. But now he goes back to life under the sun, and his focus is going to be on the love of money that he sees under the sun. And so at the outset, even though it isn't explicit in these two verses, the rest of this passage makes clear that the love of money is the theme that's going to run from verses 8 through 20. And so he says in verse 8, I, I see oppression of poor and violation of justice. And he says, when you see these things, don't be amazed at the matter. Don't be surprised or don't be shocked by the oppression of the, the, oppression of the poor or the violation of justice. And, and so why does he say, don't be amazed? He says, when you see it, don't be amazed. Why? Verse 8 continues, for, that's a ground, that's a reason, for the high official is watched by a higher one. And yet there are higher ones over them. In other words... His point is that when oppression and injustice are present in a land, it's because there are multiple layers of authority, all of which are typically involved. Not only are they involved, but they're, they're aware of what's going on. Just like in chapter 4, the oppressed are powerless because those in positions of authority are the very ones uh, uh, promoting the oppression and injustice. And in this context, here in chapter 5, the promotion of oppression and injustice are caused by the greed of those in power. Their love of riches, that's what the rest of the context seems to, to imply here. That they're oppressing and violating justice because they want more for themselves. And the preacher would tell us this is, this is simply life under the sun. And while certainly we see evidence of this in our country, right? You, you can think in our, our country's history, even our, our country's presence. Present, you see this type of activity at all levels, right? From, from the house, the home, parents, or all the way up to, to the national government, right? You see levels of this. But our country, <coughs> the, 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 the way that this has acted in our history pales in comparison to, to what other countries have gone through. So there are places in the world where political scandals and corruption are far worse than we've experienced here. And so places like Tanzania or Equatorial Guinea or Chechnya or Panama or Malaysia these are all countries where, where cases of corruption and scandal among the government leaders, sometimes the highest leader, are destroying the people and the countries, the very countries that they are supposed to lead and they're responsible for. 
And so the preacher is saying, this is just life under the sun. In a fallen world, this is what people with power and authority are prone to do. So don't be surprised, he says. We see this evidenced. But in verse 9, he offers what, what seems to be an alternative solution. He paints a picture that is beneficial for everyone. And so, so here's what you see. He says, but here's what's beneficial for, for the land, for everyone. And in that picture, this alternative solution, he paints the picture of a king or the highest leader, the one all the way at the very top who's committed to the good for everyone. That's what he means when he says, gain for a land in every way is a king committed to cultivated fields. And so as he's writing, think about this, especially in Old Testament context where this idea of land and possession was the right of every family. Think about the Israelites when they invade the promised land and every family gets a land apportioned to them. Every tribe has their land and their whole chapter is devoted to who gets what because land possession is a fundamental right to the people there. And so part of Israel's possession, their inheritance from the Lord was this land. It was a gift from God himself and it's what every family was dependent upon for survival and provision. And the king, the one in authority, the God-appointed leader, was responsible for making sure that the land stayed within the family. And so you couldn't just sell it off and give it to a neighbor. It was, it was the, the, the inheritance of your family. And so the king was not to steal the land or to give the land to unlawful owners. The, the, land, the king, for the well-being of the nation, was supposed to keep land as it was apportioned. Which is why the story of, of Naboth's vineyard, maybe you're familiar with Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, it's an egregious story where there's a king named Ahab who has an evil wife named Jezebel and, and there's a guy who has a vineyard that's been in his family and, and the king wants it so he goes and tries to buy it from Naboth and he says, no, I'm not going to sell it. And so the king is sad and his wife says, oh, I, I see why you're sad. Let's go wrongfully accuse the owner of the vineyard and then he'll have to be killed and then king, you'll get it. It's an egregious story, but that's what happens in 1 Kings 21. And he's the king who is acting contrary to how the king is supposed to. And so this idea of land, gain for a land in every way, is when the, the people at the top are, are committed to the good of everyone. That's, I think, the best case scenario for a government, for a God-ordained government, where, where the interests of the people are always considered first. This is the nation where the king is committed to ensuring that the entire land is inhabitants were prospering. And it's a scenario, unfortunately, that wasn't common in the preacher's day and still isn't common in our day. In fact, this should, this should at least cause us to long for the day when human governments will be no more or will only be redeemed. And so when, when Jesus returns as the only rightful king, the only perfectly governing king returns, and we are willfully and gladly submissive to him and his leadership. We, we should long for that. So when we read this Old Testament context, we know Jesus is coming and his reign is going to be established and we're going to be his people. We're going to be with him. And so when we see leaders who do not lead well, we ought to, instead of getting angry, we ought to long for the return of Christ. That's a Christ-centered application here. But, but next, so look, look next in verses 10 through 12. The, the preacher turns to another related problem. And so he turns to the deceit of riches there in verses 10 through 12. So look there at verse 10. Pretty straightforward statement. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If you have the NIV, it starts off with, whoever loves money never has enough. So remember the, the quote from Rockefeller that, that I mentioned a few weeks ago, that the, one of the first millionaires in our country who was asked how much money is enough, and he said just a little bit more. 
right? The person who loves money never has enough money. And the preacher wants you to know and wants me to know that the love of money and the love of wealth cannot satisfy. It cannot. It's an empty well that's going to keep you coming back and back and back, and it will never satisfy. And so it's meaningless, he would say, to think that money or wealth can satisfy. One commentator remarks, like all false gods, money is incapable of satisfying the hunger and the thirst of the person who's devoted to it. Profit never fulfills those who pursue it, but it only feeds the insatiable desire for more. It's the never-ending cycle, and it's deceitful because it makes promises that it can't deliver on. And so I need to hear this truth this morning. You need to hear this truth this morning. We need to hear this truth this morning that the one who loves money will not ever be satisfied with money. Just hear that. Nor he who loves wealth will ever be satisfied with his income. Money and wealth as the objects of our love or worship do not and cannot satisfy. The vanity of this disease is coveting what does not satisfy when we have it. And so think about when you're hungry, your hunger is satisfied with food. And when you're thirsty, your thirst is satisfied with drink. But hunger or thirst for this world's wealth is as unsatisfied at the end as it is at the beginning. So, so, so if your, your hunger is for money or riches, it's the stomach that will never get full. And you'll keep feeding and feeding and feeding until it comes to an unfortunate end and you realize one way or the other that you can't take it with you. And so no amount of money, the preacher says, is able to satisfy. Money and wealth, for one, are not intended to be the objects of our worship. That's what we mentioned at the beginning. God has given us things to point to him, not to be him. But secondly, riches and wealth cannot satisfy because even if they did, the more you have, the more you end up losing. Look there at verse 11. Verse 11 says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the more money you have, the more you lose. So you think about the, the person, I think of athletes who make it big time, and then cousins and, and uncles show up from the woodwork saying, Hey, remember me. Right? The more you have, the more that, that you have to give away the more you lose. It might be family or distant relatives. It might be an oppressive government or taxes. The more you make, the more you have to pay. Whether you, you have more kids or dependents, you, you, you keep shelling out money, especially as they get into college and, and later. The preacher's point is that when you have more, you end up losing more, and then your money and your great wealth simply disappear before your very eyes. And so what good is it except to watch it go away? You can't enjoy it. And so, so, so it's, it's deceitful. You don't benefit. You just watch it leave in the form of however it leaves. And so money and possessions are so powerful because they make promises that they can't keep. And, and we just need to recognize that, that the culture that we live in, this entire culture, is built around empty promises. I mean, every Facebook ads or television commercials, billboards, Radio, everything is built around empty promises. I mean, I love, I love a good Coke, right? A good Coca-Cola classic, right? I love a good Coke. But when their sales pitch is, quote, open happiness, end quote, that is a lie. It's a lie. I don't care how much you like it or how good it is. If they're saying, hey, happiness is in this can, 
It's not. It's not an aluminum can filled with 12 ounces of soda that consists of, I checked this, 39 grams of sugar, carbonated water, high fructose corn syrup, caramel color, phosphoric acid, natural flavors, and caffeine is not going to change my mental or emotional state. Next time you're depressed or stressed or overwhelmed by the difficulties of life, open a Coke and see if you're just happy. But that's the point. They don't expect you to think about it. You just say, oh, open happiness. Yeah, that Coke, that sounds good. I'm going to go buy it. And Coke, I just pick on them because my mother-in-law works for Coke and I like giving her a hard time. But, it, but our culture is filled with these promises where, where things offered can satisfy in ways that they can't, but they're promised to. That's why there's always the next thing. Stuff, all the stuff in this world, all the stuff of this world can promise Nothing can satisfy when it's pursued as the primary object of satisfaction. And so nothing in this world, when pursued as the ultimate or primary object of satisfaction, can deliver on that promise, save God himself. So there's God and there's everything else. And nothing in a category of everything else can satisfy the way that is intended to or the way it's promised the love of money, the love of greed is never satisfied. I came across, across this quote from 1851. Listen to how this, this, um, this commentator talks about this, this love of money or this greed. And so he writes, Could you change the solid earth into a single lump of gold and drop it into the gaping mouth of avarice, which is greed, It would only be a crumb of transient comfort, a cordial drop, enabling it to cry a little louder, give, give. Do you hear that? The whole world becomes a a big piece of gold and you drop it into the, the gaping mouth of greed and it's just a transient comfort. It's just temporary because that mouth is going to consume the whole world of gold and then say more. What else can I have? It's just a great picture And that picture illustrates the nature of greed and love of money. And not only is the love of money never quenched, not only does the love of money lead to more demands on it, but lastly, the love of money keeps you awake at night. Look at verse 12. Again, here's an alternative. He says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. Sweet sleep comes to the laborer, regardless of what he's eaten, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So notice the logic, a full stomach will not let a rich man go to sleep. Well, why not? Because the rich man, regardless of what's in his stomach, is concerned with his riches. He's concerned with them, whether, whether he's losing them or whether how, how he can sustain them or how he's going to increase them. Right? The full stomach reminds him, I've got riches I've got to take care of. I've got to be concerned about. So he can't sleep. His mind is consumed with his wealth, whereas... The laborer, regardless of what's in his stomach, whether little or much, is able to sleep peacefully because he's content with his labor and he's tired because he's been working and he's able to rest. And so the one suffers the indigestion of materialism, being too full of good things. And the other, the, la- the laborer, tasting more selectively of life's bounties, bounty knows sweeter dreams. 
So it's important to, if you're if you're consumed by a love for money, you will not rest. The preacher then, in verses thirteen through seventeen, turns to another related problem of riches. Our third point: the transience of riches. So again, this illustration of the utter vanity that is that is found in riches. He writes in verse thirteen: "There's a grievous grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner at his hurt or to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture." And so the sore evil that the preacher has seen under the sun next in verses 13 through 17 is the, evil, is the rich man who hoards his riches, who keeps them to himself, and then loses them in a moment, in an instant. It's because of this transient nature of wealth, because a job could be lost in a moment, or an accident could happen in a moment, or a bad investment could, could ruin you in a moment, he says that the, the e- grievous evil, the, the person who hoards their wealth, is to their own hurt. They, they don't give it away. They keep it, and then it's all gone. It's like the parable in Luke chapter 12. Maybe you're familiar with the parable where there's the rich fool who has, who has sufficient crops, and he says, I want more crops, so I'm going to build more barns and more barns and more barns, and he gets more and more and more, and he builds his final building phase is the biggest barns that he's had and the biggest barns in the nation and then the Lord visits him that, that night and says, now's your night to go. You fool, tonight this very, your very life is required of you. And he's dead and gone the next day. And then who enjoys his stuff? Who enjoys the big barns? What's the point of building bigger and bigger barns is what the parable teaches. Wealth is an unstable foundation. It's not a good foundation. In fact, Paul would tell Timothy... In 1 Timothy 6, tell the rich not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. There's an uncertainty that comes with wealth, with riches. And if we're, if we're building on that, it could be gone in an instant. It's transient. And here in verse 14, so to make matters worse, this man who hoarded his riches and then lost them, he's a father who had a son. So, so previously there was a fool who had no son, and he was all alone, had nobody to share with. But here, this one has someone to share it with. But he lost it all, and he had nothing in his hand. His son had nothing. And so the father, was he lost it all. He had hoarded his riches, and he lost them all for whatever reason. A natural disaster, a bad business venture, could be a stock market crash. Whatever reason, it's all gone in a flash. And he suffers loss, but not only that, his hands are empty, and he has nothing for his son. And the preacher continues, notice there in verse 15. It's not just an unexpected event that endangers gathered wealth. There's an expected event that is coming to all of us that will guarantee the loss of all your riches and possessions. So look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall he take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The answer implied is nothing. You can't gain anything. And so as he came into the world with nothing, so too he'll leave the world with nothing. If you don't remember, when you were born, you had nothing. You had nothing. You didn't have a car or a house. You didn't have clothes. You came thanks to your mom. She sustained you. But you had nothing to your name. And that's what's going to happen. One day you're going to lay in a coffin or in an urn and you're not going to have anything. 
Your hands are going to be empty. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the sobering reality that stops all of us in our tracks. As we consider the meaning of this life and the place of riches and wealth in this life, what can you gain really from life under the sun when it's impossible for you to leave the world with any earthly possessions? Maybe you've heard the, the famous phrase, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. If you, if you Google search that, you'll see some pictures where people have actually seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. But the point is, you can't take it with you. It's not like the pharaohs where they bury you with, with gold and, and all your possessions. Right? You, you don't take it with you. I mean, these words, maybe you're familiar, maybe you've heard it before. This isn't the only place in the Bible where, where these words come up. In fact, in Job chapter 1, we hear these, these very words from the lips of Job. And so the, the great suffering that Job underwent in chapter 1, so he receives news. It's just wave after wave where, where the, his oxen are gone, and then his donkeys are gone, and then his sheep are gone, and his servants are gone, and all his, and all his camels are gone. And then the final blow... The, the servant comes and says, all your children were together having a feast and a great wind came and the house collapsed and all of your kids are gone. And so wave after wave, as Job hears this, he's lost it all. Everything is gone. And after that, Job says in chapter one, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord is what Job says. And then we hear a, a comment, the last verse of chapter 1, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so Job recognizes the transient of everything in this life. And he brought nothing into this world and he shall take nothing out of this world. And with that perspective, even though Job's loss was great and tragic, I don't want to minimize that, but his perspective is instructive to us. Because his perspective, even in the midst of great loss, is the same as the preacher in 5.15. One day we will all lie in a casket with empty hands, and the preacher wants that reality to shape how we think about life now. Most specifically, that living a life focused on wealth and gain is vanity. It's chasing the wind. It will never satisfy. In fact, the, the rich person, the person who loves riches, verse 17 of chapter 5 says... That all his days or her days are filled with eating in darkness, much vexation and sickness and anger. Right? That, that's, what, that's what pursuing this endless pursuit does to you. It destroys you and it robs you of all joy. And so what's the solution? What's the answer? Right? Is there an alternative way to life under the sun? The answer is yes, there is. And we'll see that in verses twenty through or 18 through 20. But before we get there, let me just make, make a brief application here. Because I think from the, this first section, we can, we can just hear and heed the warning to beware of the love of money. I mean, you should just hear that this morning. Beware of the love of money. I mean, it's a great, I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Jesus talks about wealth and money and possessions often, but, but there, he gives a parable in multiple gospels. But in Mark chapter 4, it's the parable of the soils, where he talks about the, the, the sower goes out and scatters seed and it lands on different kinds of soils. Are you familiar with that, that parable? Well, one of the the, the first soil is the path, and, and that doesn't take root. It's eaten by the birds, and it's, it, it's, it doesn't take root. And then the, the second soil is rocky ground. And so, and so it, it shoots up fast, but the roots can't go in because it's rocky ground. And so when the sun comes up, and the sun shines on it, scorches it, and it dies quickly. It doesn't, it doesn't stay there. And then the third soil is, 
is the thorny ground, which it, it takes root, but it grows up and it's choked out by the thorns. Then fourth, finally, the last soil is the good soil, where it grows and grows and grows. And so the third soil there, the thorny ground soil, after Jesus tells the parable, his disciples have like a, a behind-the-scenes explanation of the parable. And listen to what Jesus says about the thorny ground. Remember, this is the ground where it, where it grows up. It's good soil, but there's thorns in it, and it chokes it out. Here's what Jesus says. He says, others, the, the, the seed, the ones sown among the thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And so Jesus says the thorns in the parable, thing that chokes out the word and the growth that comes from the word are the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things. And so Jesus there in, in Mark 4 is teaching that desire for riches and worldly things prevent the word from taking root, prevent a life of growth towards God and godliness. The love of money is a hindrance, an obstacle, and it makes the heart infertile soil for the gospel. And so it's no insignificant love, the love of money. is an eternally significant thing. But, but listen also in 1 Timothy 6. Listen to how Paul warns Timothy. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For, here's the explanation, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So that's 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. That language, those who love money fall into a snare. They fall into harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's eternal consequence talk. So he's saying the love of money is damning some people. That's what he's saying. There's no other way to interpret that. Many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And so Paul is saying through love of money, some people have wandered away from the faith. They've been choked out. Their love for God has been overcome by another love, a greater love, and they've walked away from the faith completely. And so we're talking about eternal consequences of loving money, of worshiping riches, and so we simply need to beware of the love of money. In fact, we don't know for sure, but, but Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, so he was a partner with Paul, but in 2 Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, he says, hey, Demas was in love with this present world, and he's left me, so I'm all alone now. And so no one's exempt. Even one of Paul's trusted gospel partners fell in love with the present world and deserted Paul. And we assume abandoned his faith. And so I simply just want you to beware of the love of money. It makes promises that it cannot keep. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. So heed that. But there is a better way. Look at verses 18 through 20. This is our, our, last, our last section. The alternative to riches. So in verses 18 through 20, so there's a shift in tone. So there's a dark pessimism of verses 8 through 17, but now there's a change in tone. And another change that's noticeable here is now God is present in verses 18, 19, and 20. He's not there in 8 through 17. But now here he appears, and he marks this change in tone in this alternative way. And so the preacher says in verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting... We haven't heard that very often in, in Ecclesiastes. This is a different tone, different tune. 
It's not I've seen depressing things under the sun. Or I've seen bad things. Or I've seen evil. But actually, I've seen what's good and fitting under the sun. It's simply this. Verse 18. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. And so what's good and fitting, says the preacher, is finding enjoyment. Life as a gift, receiving Life as a gift, enjoyment in the pursuit of eating and drinking and toiling under the sun. If, it's almost as if the preacher is saying the joy is in the journey itself. Don't view your life as a means to an end. Just in, view your life as a, as a means of enjoying God. And so he says life is short, so enjoy it while it lasts. You have a few days. You've got a few days, but, but he doesn't say you've got a few days, so do whatever you want. That's not his answer. He said you've got a few days, so you better find enjoyment while it lasts. And so the enjoyment, satisfaction cannot come from riches or possessions. And so he says enjoy your toil. It doesn't mean live impulsively or selfishly. Instead, enjoying life, finding joy in the few days of your life on earth under the sun comes from, the preacher says, recognizing that God is the giver of all good things. So there's a God-sitterness that is the foundation of a satisfied life. Right? That's what he said. This is your lot. God has given you these things. This is his lot. It's what you've got. And so enjoy life. Recognizing that God is the giver of all good things. There's a God-sitterness that is the foundation of a satisfied life. This is what Job cried. This is what the preacher is teaching. Without God, life is meaningless and miserable. Your life was made to be lived in light of God, centered on God. And so the point here is he's closing. When your enjoyment is centered upon God, and when you enjoy your lot in life, when you recognize that God is the God of providence who's placed you where he has, and he's been sovereignly orchestrating your life from day one, when you recognize that, and when your life is centered around the worship of that God, and understand that your life is a gift from that God to be enjoyed, then and only then can you enjoy God's gifts. So, so it's as if, here, here's a, a science illustration. I'm, I'm, I'm going on shaky ground here, but think about the sun and the universe. The planets orbit around the sun, but they only orbit when the sun is the center. If you move the sun, nothing else is going to orbit right or correctly. And so any other love that you put in the center of your universe, save God himself, nothing's going to work. Money can't be the center of your universe or everything's going to be out of whack. You were created, I was created to live a life with God as the center of our universe. And when God is our primary source of joy and fulfillment, then everything else can be enjoyed rightly. Notice verses 19 and 20. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Even among those who have a lot, to those whom God has given wealth and possessions, even those things are determined by God and are to be received as a gift from the hand of God. And so the preacher drives home this point that life is meant for life is not meant for gain, but is meant for gift. Man must get enjoyment not possessions out of life. And that enjoyment, receiving life as God's gift, can only come from God. And so the, the satisfied life is and must be unapologetically God-centered. And so we just need to recalibrate. What, what are we loving more than God? What are our affections being driven by or being attracted to other than God? 
And so the solution to life under the sun, the solution to life in a world filled with many would-be gods, the world that God created is full of many rich gifts, but the ability to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves. That's why it's always useless to worship the gifts instead of the giver. The reality of life under, sun, under the sun is that God's gifts make bad gods. God's gifts make bad gods because they're never meant to be gods. They're meant to be gifts that point us to God. Only God can satisfy. And all of his gifts, whether great or small, are meant to be means towards satisfaction in God alone. And so the person who learns this well, verse 20, this, this is my prayer for myself, my prayer for all of us. Verse 20, the person who learns this lesson well will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And so we, we want lives filled with joy that comes from God alone. And so the final application as we close is simply to cultivate contentment by seeking satisfaction in God. Cultivate contentment by seeking satisfaction in God. And I, I've got a handful of verses, but I, I'll just close with this one. Hebrews 13, 5. So Hebrews 13, 5, a great verse to memorize. Author of Hebrews writes in, in verse 5 of chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It doesn't stop there. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. He doesn't stop there. He says, clarifies what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we fight our love of money. We cultivate contentment by seeking satisfaction in God alone because God alone has committed to never let us down. So be content with what you have, for you have God. That's the point of, of Hebrews 13.5. The love of money will eventually let you down. It will eventually outlive its promises, either by loss that's unexpected or death. Lasting contentment cannot come from riches or the love of money. However, there is a source of satisfaction. There is a source of lasting joy who will never outlive his promises, who will never let you down. And that source is God himself. He is the only true lasting source of joy and satisfaction. So the satisfied life is the God-centered life. And so we simply need to cultivate contentment. God has cast our lot. We recognize him as the providential God who has ordered our lives, and we're content with what we have. When our desires are running before our wants, it were far better to sit down content where we are than we were to hope to be in the delusion of our insatiable desire. So if you're a Christian, hear this word, you're already rich. You have God. There's nothing more that can, that can up your balance. You are in the positive infinitely. You have him. He is rich, not who possesses much, but he who desires little, whose treasure is in God, in his God and Savior. For where but in him can the vast desires of our souls be satisfied? And so my, my hope for us is that we would learn to say with a psalmist, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray as we close.